0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Yeah, welcome. Welcome to you all. Welcome to the uh, online crew. I see you. So, uh, in January, Thich Nhat Han died at uh, the age of ninety five, which was uh, I think about seven years after a major stroke and when i I heard, I didn't find myself especially emotional, but then i looked at some pictures of him you know and um, found myself uh, crying just seeing seeing his face and uh, all that is conveyed by his face and uh, one of my my uh, first uh, deep encounters with dharma was a, a Thich Nhat Hanh young adult sangha in uh, in Los Angeles and I, I had kind of passing academic interest in meditation but had never uh really encountered the dharma and I had a couple um apartment mates at the time who you two friends moved out two new people moved in and um they were both meditators long-term meditators and um they they told me that they were going to have a housewarming party which um was their way of not freaking me out that it was going to be a gathering of the sangha yeah and um, and so I, at the time, was working in residential treatment uh, uh, with uh, adolescent boys, really intense work, beautiful work and really intense. And I had no idea about, like, self-care or a- anything like that. Every day I just sort of left it all on the table, you know, and would come home just like kind of wrecked, you know, and, uh, heart full and wrecked. And, uh, I remember one of those nights I, uh, I kind of like barreled in the front door after a long day and a group of people were sitting around candlelight talking about love, you know, And that made an impression, you know, like, okay, this is like a parallel universe kind of. And uh, I sat down, I sat down. I hadn't, uh, I hadn't heard from the group in 20 years. It kind of, everyone went their own ways, hadn't heard... Literally twenty years and um and a week before uh Thich Nhat Hanh, people would call him Thai, but a week before he died, somebody started a thread out of nowhere. Yeah. So I I went through different relationships to his teaching, sort of uh feeling like uh, that at times it reaching me, at times feeling um, somehow kind of sentimental or something or idealistic. And I found that as my own practice, my own encounter with the Dharma deepens, what, what a text, what a person, what a tradition does to one's heart changes too. And you really see how much you might have missed in earlier encounters. And with his teaching, uh, for sure, um, I see, uh, yeah, just tremendous depth and grace. And so I was not, uh, you know, I did not have a lot of contact with him, but did practice it. At Deer Park outside San Diego, and um, peace walks in Lo- in Los Angeles, and uh, uh, taught with some later taught with some of his, his monastics, and um, yeah, he left a kind of mark, and so want to pay tribute to that. who can you t- who can you really trust when they talk about love like who has earned the moral credibility to actually say love and it's trustworthy one way of earning that moral credibility is to encounter tremendous hardship and persist in a sense of love, devotion to love. And Ty was on the front lines of war, of religious persecution, of exile for almost 40 years. And so when he says love, I take that seriously when he persists in that, that um, our redemption is through love. I take that seriously. This is uh, him in, in conversation with Bell Hooks, this is 2000. Martin Luther King was among us as a brother, as a friend, as a leader. He was able to maintain that love. When you touch him, you touch a bodhisattva. For his understanding and love was enough to hold everything to him. He tried to transmit his insight and his love to the community, but maybe we have not received it enough. He was trying to transmit the best things to us, his goodness, his love, his non-duality. But because we had clung so much to him as a person, we did not bring the essence of what he was teaching into our community. So now that he is no longer here, we are at a loss. We have to be aware that the crucial transmission he was making was not the transmission of power, of authority, of position, but the transmission of the Dharma. It means love. It can be... uh, can be hard to trace the influences of one's teachers on one's own being. And uh, myself now doing some teaching, I, I am cognizant that I'm sort of like plagiarizing all of my teachers all of the time without being aware of it. It feels like it's my original thought. But it's not. And it's not because they become part of us, you know. Like when we encounter a a teacher open-heartedly, their goodness, we sort of like distill out the medicine that they have for our own heart, and it becomes a part of us, and it feels native to our heart. And so it's hard to tell what is them and what is oneself. And Thay's teachings have um, they've had a major impact on uh, the kind of, certainly the Buddhist practice in this country, many countries. One of the things I remember most was uh, his body the way he he moved, it was just, it just had a kind of moral force to it. You know, it was like, it was the teaching itself. And I don't know, I'm not temperamentally a kind of patient person, but to see him take a step just, kind of, like, issued this commandment, you know, to, like, get still. Because all of my movement or impatience or the activities of my mind in those moments, they just, they just had this kind of absurd sort of look in the mirror of his presence and stillness. And I heard that after his stroke, uh, two monks would stand on each shoulder and two monks uh, with his legs and would support him in taking mindful steps, yeah? Even given the, the compromised state of his body. So I'd watch him move. Uh, to and from the dais around the monastery through the streets of Los Angeles and I'd think about what he said. The kingdom of God is available to you in the here and now, but the question is whether you are available to the kingdom. Our practice is to make ourselves ready for the kingdom so that it can manifest in the here and now. You don't have to die in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. You have to be truly alive in order to do so. So much kind of, um, yeah, wonder in that. What What is the kingdom of God? I would hear that, you know, in in his ecumenical style of kind of mixing language, Buddhist and theistic language, enter the kingdom of God, be available to the kingdom of God. And I had no idea what that meant. But the best instructions are the instructions that evoke sincerity and curiosity and wonder. What is that? How do I make my heart available to the kingdom? He says, no mud, no lotus. And that is really a kind of poetic way of rendering the path of purification. No mud, no lotus. And some of the metaphors around purification, you know, of uh, kind of military metaphors of like uh, you know killing the kalesas, the defilements, the force of greed, hatred, delusion, you know, sometimes a really strong language of uh, um, the force that we we must use the energy and effort actually required to meet the depth of the forces of suffering, of Mara. But this is rendered much more gently. No mud, no lotus. And so, of course, there is mud. There is great suffering. And that is the compost and the fertilizer for our growing freedom. And so, in this way, life becomes our our teacher. I said in the sit, something like, um, to be present is to be utterly undefended against imperfection. That is beckoning us into this path of purification where, um, anything, everything is a kind of doorway into a deeper presence. He emphasized the non-duality of wisdom and compassion, often rendering that as as understanding and love. And... uh, sometimes it feels like we have wisdom over here and love over here and on the wisdom side it's like every phenomena, every arising is a gateway to emptiness and then on this side there's an image of like love pervading all things you know, boundless measureless and we can be attracted to one side or the other, but uh, Thich Nhat Hanh articulated the the non-duality of wisdom and love. And specifically, he tied the notion of egoic identification with deficits of love. The real power of the Buddha, he wrote, was that he had so much love He saw people trapped in their own notions of small, separate self, feeling guilty or proud of that self. And he offered revolutionary teachings that resounded like a lion's roar, helping people to wake up, to break free from the prison of ignorance. And indeed, we do see that um, I think ego is a a function of fear and its hallmark is defensiveness and its expression is clinging. And the more energy we actually divest from the egoic not the more it flows into wholesomeness, into love. And so wisdom and love, they're connected. Um, this is, um, again, thai. if you pour a handful of salt into a cup of water, the water becomes undrinkable. But if you pour the salt into a river, people can continue to draw the water to cook, wash, and drink. The river is immense and it has the capacity to receive, embrace, and transform. When our hearts are small, our understanding and compassion are limited and we suffer. We can't accept or tolerate others and their shortcomings and we demand that they change. But when our hearts expand, these same things don't make us suffer anymore. We have a lot of understanding and compassion and can embrace others. We accept others as they are and then they have a chance to transform. Understanding someone's suffering is the best gift you can give another person. Understanding is love's other name if you don't understand, you can't love. Understanding is love's other name. That is very beautiful. And it speaks to this, this um, understanding that we develop, this insight we develop over the a dharma life. That um, uh, the more deeply we look into conditionality, the more reason we will have to love. The less tenable hatred becomes. Yeah, that 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 hatred is never the last word. It may be a first word. It may be an important first word but it is never the last word. And so understanding, understanding is love's other name. I've returned to his uh, reflections on on anger often and um, see it as a kind of yeah service that he w- he was you know he was ordained quite young and was a mon- you know monastic for his whole life. and yet he was doing what he could to try to speak to a lay life, the life of 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 family and relationships and the the um, the joys of that and the oppor- spiritual opportunity of that and the tremendous suffering of it. And so, um, on anger, on anger, the book I <clears throat> um, so it comes up in my own own reflections and talks often is um, his counsel was not to suppress anger, not to vent. He called venting anger rehearsing it. Yeah. Um, and uh, not to pretend you're not angry, but to uh, basically care for it as a, one cares for a child. And so, it uh, says, just like our organs, our anger is part of us, when we're angry, we have to go back to ourselves and take good care of our anger. We cannot say, go away, anger, I don't want you. When you have a stomach ache, you don't say, I don't want you, Stomach. No, you take care of it in the same way we have to embrace and take care, good care of our anger. And so um, he described this kind of approach to I think what he called peace talks to actually expressing anger, neither, neither suppressing it nor acting it out. And to talk about anger, to confess one's anger without doing it in an aggressive way is very vulnerable. It's more vulnerable sometimes than to say, I am angry with you, than to say, I love you. And he uh, articulated, uh, yeah, a kind of just a few. Mantras, gattas, to like uh, uh, to support the conversation. That m- they work like in a, this kind of like they're diametrically opposed to the the kind of core energy of anger, which is to declare our invulnerability, our independence, to declare our certainty to be an island. But the very truth that we are angry is a testament that we can be hurt, that we have been hurt. And so he invites us into the kind of courage of um, meeting, meeting this interpersonally. And in the context of relationship. He offers these these three uh, kind of statements, and w- one doesn't even have to make these statements, even just to reflect on them is potent enough to do something to one's heart and so I would go to the person you know i 'm angry with, and um after having practiced and done my best to you know to manage to take good care of the the child of anger you know and um and then the the the, the statements the confessions the pleas are i am angry i suffer i'm doing my best i need your help I am angry. I suffer. I'm doing my best. I need your help. And I think what I find so so touching about that, that like uh, okay it is exactly what anger wishes to conceal namely our dependence. And here we just come right out with it. I need your help. Yeah. Thai highlighted um, non-duality in a, in a particular way that all things inter-are. The order of inter-being was his uh, um, committed practitioners. The order of inter-being. All things inter-are and um at first it it sort of sounds like a kind of philosophical analysis of interdependence that that um you know of dependent dependent origination that th- this is because that is when this is not that is not but it it feels like more than uh, a philosophical reflection. It is being invited into an insight into uh, emptiness. If you're a poet, you will see that there's a cloud floating in this sheet of paper. Without a cloud, there's no rain. Without rain, no trees. Without trees, cannot make paper. So we can say that the cloud and the paper inter are. Looking even more deeply, we can see we are in it too. It's not so difficult to see because when we look at this sheet of paper, sheet of paper is part of our perception. Your mind is in here and mine is also. So we can say everything is in here with this sheet of paper, you cannot point out one thing that is not here. Time, space, the earth, the rain, the minerals in the soil, the sunshine, the cloud, the river and the heat. This sheet of paper is because everything else is. If that's a sheet of paper, what are you? Yeah. That can stop us in our tracks. This uh, understanding provides a basis for, um, for. Non-division for compassion, and uh, and it points to the uh, suggestion: no, no birth, no death. Yeah. There's no coherent place to demarcate. A life, a birth, a death. We think of our body as ourself, belonging to ourself, but if you look deeply, you see the body as the body of your ancestors, of your parents, of your children, their children. So it's a not me, it's a not mine. Your body is full of everything else, limitless non body elements. To die in our notion of death means that from something you suddenly become nothing. From someone you become no one. That is a horrible idea. That makes no sense. If something has not been born, will that something have to die sometime? And this, he said, was the key to fearlessness. Fearlessness. It's often said ignorance is the kind of fundamental wellspring of suffering, but I often have the thought that it's fear, that, that this is even more foundational than ignorance. And so fearlessness, he said, is the ultimate joy. Fearlessness is the ultimate joy. And this understanding reframes how we construe death and endings. And so, Tai did not talk about reincarnation as a kind of um, the seed consciousness, you know, reanimating a new body or something like this. No, it's like the, the sum total of our, you know, the uh, lineage, our, our kind of lineage, and the effects of our life on everything else, and so one last piece this begins. Uh, the talk begins with uh, Thay saying. Uh, she was 20 years old when I first met her. And it's kind of like record scratch, kind of like, wait, 20 years old when I first met her. And indeed it is a love story. And he describes being a um, a 24 year old monk celibate monk, and falling in love with a nun. And said, as a monk, you're not supposed to fall in love, but sometimes love is stronger than your determination. And so this is from a series of talks given in 1992. He was 65, I believe, and called Cultivating the Mind of Love. And um, he's falling in love and she seems to be falling in love too. And uh, he has a, a, a sleepless night and tries to write poetry but can't even get one sentence down. You know, he's trying to redirect the intensity of this kind of falling you know and uh, and he's up late at night and uh, desperately wants to go to her room and indeed she has a similar kind of longing and he because of his vows, his commitments, and and the sense of like his vow to protect her, to protect her, he does not go. And they decide together, given their vows, that they, they must be away from each other. They have to be apart in different monasteries. And so she is about to move to somewhere else, Yeah. He says, I remember the moment we parted. We sat across from each other. She too seemed overwhelmed by despair. She stood up, came close to me, took my head in her arms and drew me close to her in a very natural way. I allowed myself to be embraced. It was the first and last time we had any physical contact. Then we bowed and separated. So what to do with that despair, with that poignancy, with that longing, what to do with it no mud, no lotus. And through a kind of alchemical process that is transformed, maybe we call it sublimation, maybe we call it purification, but there's a way of actually, he's describing, of redirecting his own narrow personal longing into the channel of a greater love and pro-social commitment. And so he says, over time, my love for her did not diminish, but it was no longer confined to one person. I began to see her everywhere. So this is a sacrifice and a renunciation and it's one that um, he made for her and for himself and for us. We are the inheritors of that gesture. We're the beneficiaries of that love And so the question then is like uh, what, what will we do with Tai's love? Let's just sit for a moment. So thank you, thank you for your uh, attention, practice, and um, yeah, yeah to YouTube group. Yeah, thank you. And um, yeah, I wish you wish you all well off of this for for your uh, consideration. Pick up what's useful and uh, leave what's not behind.